Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hi, this is David Temple, host of The Thriller Zone podcast, and I'm happy to welcome New York Times bestselling author Don Bentley to today's show. Don is one of those brave Americans who has served his country in several ways and who, along with his wife, has managed to build professions while raising three children. And yet Don has still found the time to craft the nonstop action of the Matt Drake series and a Tom Clancy thriller. On today's show, Don will share his lessons on perseverance, what it's like to be an FBI agent, a SWAT team member, and an Apache helicopter pilot. And besides showing some of his strategic moves, he'll offer his best advice on how to craft a career as a writer. Now, it's time to get in the thriller zone. You look spectacular. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. You'll notice. Mm, Very nice. Pearly snaps. Well done. (laughs) I told my wife yesterday, I said, you know, he's always getting ribbed about his pearly uh, snap. So I said, uh, let's see, I've, I think I've got a shirt somewhere. So I got to kind of bring the snap. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Probably don't get a lot of use out of that in California, I would imagine, huh? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. It's uh, it's hot. <laughs> it's really hot. I can see that. Yeah, I'm not lying. I uh, I generally am wearing uh, t-shirts, but today I thought, no, I'll step up. But uh, the denim is <laughs> is pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. So if I turn into a flop sweat, just uh, <laughs> you'll think it's nerves or something. Awesome. My guest today on the Thriller Zone is Don Bentley, a guy who many of you know, and uh, before becoming a rock star author. He uh, spent a decade as an Apache helicopter pilot in the Army. Welcome, Don. Thanks for having me, David. Man, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And um, I picked up, thanks to you, and a great little story about this, without sanction. And I was going to talk about this later, but I'm going to mention it right now. I'm going to have to come up with a way that I can say something about it being awesome and uh, and not one of the best books I've ever read because people are going to eventually go Jesus Temple says that about everything but so, uh, so I've come up with something it was awesome and it's one of the best books I've ever read <laughs> well thank you I do very much appreciate that it was uh 17 years and three books that didn't sell in the making so I appreciate that I think I'm going to go back. I, I, I'm sure our paths probably passed by one another at the uh, 2019 Thriller Fest. Yeah. And what, where was this in that process? I think, uh, so 2019 was the last one that was in person, right? That, yeah. And so this came out the next year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we had, Maybe we had just sold it right before Thriller Fest. I can't remember if that was 2018 or 2019. Maybe it was, no, it, it, it must've been in that in-between year. So with, with mine, the way, it, the way it fell, it was almost 18 months from when we sold it to when we came out. So 
we sold it right before the 2018 Thriller Fest, uh, which was awesome. And it was fun going to see everybody and tell them that. But then 2019 was kind of like, so where, where's your book? Did it really sell? Are you in? <laughs> so it was kind of a little bit of purgatory there before um, the ride actually started. So, yeah. yeah. It's been a great ride too. Oh yeah. It's been fantastic. And it's funny. It, it does, you know, I wasn't, wasn't being facetious about the the 17 years and, and three books that didn't sell beforehand. And so it feels like it, it goes very, very slow for a long period of time. And then if you're lucky, it, it picks up for, I don't know how long for, for the last two years or so, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that, right. Uh, but I want to, I want to do this to, a couple of things I want to start off with. Sure. First of all, thank you for your service. I want to start off the uh, show with that. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Yeah. And uh, number two is I am fascinated with anything that flies. Planes, <laughs> whether it's a Cessna Skyhawk, where I think I have about 11 hours uh, behind the seat, a Learjet, a 777, FA-18, or any type of helicopter. I've ridden in mm -hmm. the little teeny tiny ones and the Bell, yeah. Bell Rangers. And... I just love flight. I, I, I can't, mm -hmm. I think the only reason I didn't go into the Air Force, for instance, or the Army to be able to fly is, uh, you know, the glasses. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, I want to know, tell my audience, tell me, because I'm just friggin' fascinated by it. What is it like to fly an Apache? It's uh, maybe one of the best feelings in the world. So it's on most days, you, you can't believe they're actually paying you to fly it. And so, it's a huge helicopter. Um, it's got two engines and all kinds of power. At least it, it does now. And we were we were the first longbow Apaches, which is the second generation Apaches into Afghanistan. And so we were the same, uh, actually heavier than the original model Apache with the same engine. So in the summertime, uh, it was it was quite eventful. Um, we didn't lose any helicopters to enemy fire but we lost two to um the flying conditions because they were in the summertime you actually didn't even have enough power to hover in some of the higher spots and so to to take off you would bounce along the ground and what you tried to do was hit what's called effective transitional lift it's about 18 to 20 knots and at that point the air blows the vortices out of the rotors and they get more efficient and you had to hit that airspeed before you hit the wall at the other side of the fob. And so you have your, your co-pilot that sits in front. And before you take off each time and you do a mission, you calculate out how much weight you have in stores that you could jettison if you had to. And so it, it equates to something about, I think it's something like two or 300 pounds is 1% of power. And so you would have your front seater ready on the jettison switch in case you needed to blow the stores off in order to either clear the wall or or potentially control the landing a little better so that was uh, a bit hairy but man when you're it is the helicopter that you want to take into combat with you because it has that awesome 30 millimeter cannon hanging from the nose and most of the time we flew with that slave to your eye so anywhere you look that cannon would fire and when it would shoot it would do this like sounded like a jackhammer and the whole helicopter would shake and it was incredible it's a great aircraft wow and you you were in south korea germany and texas now this was for training yep. and or duty correct yeah so the so training for the army flight school was in uh fort rucker alabama it's in lower alabama in this little tiny in the dothan enterprise area 
And then um, after flight school, my first assignment was in South Korea and I was there for almost two years. And then I went from there to Texas and then to Alabama and then back to Texas and then to Germany for three years in two different places in Germany. And then um, while we were at Germany, we did a, a one-year deployment to Afghanistan. So yeah, a little, little all over the place. And how long, there's two questions. How long did it take you to learn? And is that particular vehicle one of the few where you have the co-pilot in front of the pilot? Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's like that in order to give the aircraft a slimmer profile. And so what you want for a gunship, if you look at the Cobra, um, it, which is the Vietnam era um, vintage attack helicopter, I think probably the first ever uh, helicopter that was designed solely to be an attack helicopter. It is barely wide enough than the pilot's shoulders. It, like it's really, really slim and tiny and that's to give it kind of that smaller profile. And you want both pilots to be able to have the same view of the battlefield. And so when you stack them one behind the, each other, cause you, in the aircraft itself, you often will hand off targets from one um, person to the next. And so you would, so for instance, on a combat mission, if I was flying in the backseat as the pilot in command, I would normally have the rockets, um, what we call WAS or the weapon activation switch slave to me. And the pilot, co-pilot gunner would have the cannon slave to his eye. And so what you can do, you, you fly with this uh, little monocle over your right eye that both gives you uh, kind of a heads up display. And it also gives you cueing dots to what the other person is looking at. And so if if I'm flying and I see something, I can say co-pilot gun it, you know, my line of sight and he or she will actually get cueing dots telling them where to move their head. And then when they move it to where I'm looking, they get a little cross um, that shows them exactly what I'm looking at. And so you will pass targets back and forth because um, sometimes he or she might see something that I don't and they want to put rounds on it and I'll do vice versa. But to answer your first question, the, the Apache transition was, and I believe still is, the longest transition. And so when you, and what I mean by that is when you, when I went to flight school, you didn't fly your primary aircraft. You flew, you mentioned the Jet Bell. Um, we had a Jet Bell trainer and, and some various iterations of that. And then you got your wings and then you graduated and went to what's called the transition course where you actually learned how to fly the aircraft. And so the Apache takes a long time, both because you're learning how to fly the aircraft and employ the weapon system and learning how to do what's called flying the bag. And so you're that, that little HDU, it's called the helmet display unit that sits over your right eye. As you move your head, there's a sensor or one or two sensors at the front of the helicopter that mimics your head movements. And so what you have to get used to doing is flying just out of that one eye because that's where your infrared video is coming from. And so the way they train you to do it in flight school is they take garbage bags and they line the windows so you can't see out and it forces you to use that eye. And then your instructor pilot sits in the front seat and he or she is the one that keeps you from killing yourself as you're learning how to do it. And so what's funny about it is if you're left eye dominant, you have to you know, train yourself to use your right eye. And then the second part of it is that any little, so for instance, when you're coming in on a final approach, you're concentrating really, really hard and, you know, staring in that, in that one eye. And if there's a little tiny hole in one of those bags, as you're coming on final approach, all of a sudden, instead of seeing the video, you see this pinprick of sunlight coming in and your eye shifts to that because it's brighter and you're like, oh my gosh. And you're trying to 
to keep on that one eye. And so believe it or not, Apache pilots, by the time you're done, like when you're flying at night, normally you use your right eye to see outside and you use your left eye to see the instruments and stuff inside. And so you can actually switch back and forth. And it's pretty incredible once you get good with it, because that sensor is located on the nose of the helicopter, you can actually look through the floor of the helicopter. So when you take your head down, the sensor's tilting down. And so you can look through the helicopter, you can look through the sides and stuff like that. So it really is a phenomenal system, but it takes a long time to get good at. And I think, I think the transition is probably five or six months. I can't remember the exact time, but then once you get to the unit, you spend a significant amount of time doing what's called an RL progression, where readiness level one is when you can go on combat missions. Readiness level three uh, means you just came to the unit. And so you have to get progressed to where the instructor pilot and the commander sign off on you being a good enough crewman to actually fight the helicopter. And so it's, it's uh, you know, for aviation in general, um, there comes a point where you feel comfortable enough, usually around 250 hours that you think you know what you're doing. And that's usually when you try and kill yourself the first time. <laughs> and then you, and then it's usually more around 500 hours to 750 or something that you're really getting good and proficient at the helicopter and such. So um, combat has a way of doing that for you because you're, you're flying it nonstop day after day. But we had actually some folks who in that year of Afghanistan flew more than a thousand hours in that single year because you're you're so busy but that yeah, was a great great airframe there's no room for add <laughs> there's no room for your head to wander i thought to myself when you said that the uh the ocular device yeah. was set up to the 30 millimeters that if all of a sudden you sneezed <laughs> <laughs> it's going with you it's yeah. going with you I yeah mean, there are there are limits um gun azimuth limits and stuff so that if, if you because you're on you know as you're flying you're turning your head behind you and the gun will go to a certain point and then stop so you're sure. not shooting behind you or something like that but yeah it's certainly it's more or more of a crew hazard or a hazard when it's on the ground and they're doing maintenance and stuff and somebody's moving the gun around and you know a person walking by has to be careful to make sure they're not they don't get hit in the knees or something with that 30 millimeter barrel so yeah. Not a good day for that. No, no, not a good day. <laughs> and tell me, Don, did did you always like as a kid want to fly? Yeah, my dad um, was at his uh, uh, a a his commercial um, flight instructor license, and so he he flew mainly. You were talking about Cessnas and stuff, mainly mm -hmm. small planes. So he had his multi-engine license too, and so he took me up a lot as a kid. Um, but I, I like to say there are kind of two kinds of pilots. So there are the pilots who are who love flying for flying sake, and those folks usually fly Blackhawks or Chinooks or, or something like that. And then there are folks who love blowing stuff up and just love the mission, and they tend to fly Apaches or, or uh, Kiowa Warriors or something like that. So yeah. I definitely fall into the latter category. You know, the reason I said that I only had 10 or 11 hours is because it is a – rich man's hobby. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it, it's not a, uh, it's not something you're just going to yeah. pick up and go, Hey, I'm going to do this for kicks and giggles because by the time you yep. order it up wet and you're uh, out there, uh, hour after hour, you look at your bill yeah. and you're like, I can't afford to get my license. Yeah. yeah and helicopters are even, I think, uh, I spent a long time since I've flown, but I think, you know, Cessnas are what, like hundred bucks an hour or something like that. Maybe. Uh, oh yeah. 
the uh, uh, you know uh, helicopters are much more because they're much more maintenance intensive, and then jet engine equipped helicopters. I think you know our our cost for the Apache when they would estimated it out was fifteen or sixteen hundred bucks an hour or something like that, and so it, it gets expensive fast for sure. Yeah. It is something I want to go back and finish one day, but you know, again, uh, I'm going to have to sell a lot of books to be able to do that. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) So you're in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom and Mm -hmm. you were awarded the Bronze Star and I'm getting this right, V for Valor medal? Uh, An air medal with a V device for for Valor, yeah, that's right. How does one attain either of these? I mean... Not not having a lot of knowledge about this. I'm just very curious about it. Yeah. So usually when you get something with a V device, it's because things have gone wrong. And that was uh, certainly the the case for me. I was what's called the, I was the air mission commander for um, a quick reactionary force or QRF force that was uh, sent to respond to four SEALs that we had lost contact with. And so that was on June 28th, 2005, and it was uh, Operation Red Wings that Marcus Luttrell, which is one of the SEALs who um, survived that day, wrote wrote a book called Lone Survivor that kind of details it in um, in great depth. But from my perspective, I had um, me and my wingman um, that were Apaches, and then either two or three Blackhawks full of Marines that were going to go try and, and rescue the SEALs. And then ahead of us were two uh, 160th Chinooks, so from the 160th Special Operations Regiment, the Night Stalkers, that's the kind of the premier special operations um, pilots. And so they had uh, two two helicopters full of SEALs that were also going to try and find these four guys. And and the lead helicopter was was shot down and I couldn't stop it. And so it was a uh, an operation that went tragically wrong. And then, like I said, what happens a lot of times is that you get a... Uh, <laughs> a medal to memorialize something that went horribly wrong that you survived. So. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Now, is this the same lone survivor as the Wahlberg movie? Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, right. wow. Yeah. It's not, we're not the movie and, and everybody has to, uh, you know, Hollywood obviously can take artistic license, but they, the, the part that I'm describing isn't in the movie. They, they cut it out and, and actually rewrote history a little bit there and, and said that the Apaches weren't available uh, for that mission. So it's, uh, it is it is what it is. Hollywood has a tendency to do that, don't they, Don? Well, I mean, they're making a movie, not a document documentary. So exactly it's within their right to do. While we're on that topic, uh, I got to know, uh, is this is this going to be on the screen? Is, uh, without sanction. I mean, that's what Possibly. everybody's dream is. Everybody's dream is so not, I, not anytime soon. How about that? Um, maybe it's because I'm biased. Maybe it's because I'm a filmmaker and I think in scenes of films, but that feels like a film, you know, they all, many feel sure. like films to me, but this, this feels not only that it feels like a series and I, I I'm a, I've become a huge fan of series, especially since, well, COVID, because we're all right. Yeah. We, we're yeah, all spending yeah. our, uh, binge watching, but um, this was I riveting. Appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. And for me, you know, I'm a kid of the '80s, and so movies, especially the movies then, are are have and, and are a huge influence on me. So, 
you know, kind of movies like Die Hard or um, Lethal Weapon or, or Bad Boys, which came along a little later. But both of those, the, the primary um, relationship was two male characters, you know, to a friendship between two male characters who were, uh, in the case of Lethal Weapon and, and Die Hard, you know, a, a black and a white main character, characters that are different in the dynamic between those two. And also extremely action-driven, extremely... What I loved about Die Hard is it had such good writing and such good dialogue, but also such a great story. And those were were huge influences on me as a kid and certainly me as a writer. And so I think my my writing probably reflects that. I'm trying to come up with a, a, a phrase, and I often do this when I'm trying to describe how a particular author makes me feel. And I, I'm now, you know, over a half a dozen or more shows in, and I try not to <clears throat> say the same thing every time outside of awesome. And I loved it. Um, but, and I, and I noticed this difference and I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but I noticed the, sure. the difference in your style between without sanction and target acquired, which is the Tom mm -hmm. Clancy book we'll talk about in a second. And it, first of all, I, I can't believe, without sanction is your first book i it's it's got thank such you. a season to it thank you like a fine texas brisket if you will mm -hmm. uh, but it's so um it's it's elegant and effortless and it's not forced and it's not overdone and it didn't feel like i didn't at any one time go jesus another cliche i mean it was <laughs> It was just lean and mean and I appreciate that. Yeah. So not trying to suck up, but it was just um, it was just that fine balance of well, we're both Jack Carr fans. And, mm -hmm. you know, you read a Jack Carr book and you're going to go through twenty four hundred different pieces of uh, equipment. <laughs> sure. And sure. have in-depth detail about it, which is has its own fascination. Yep. Uh, this didn't do that, but uh, equally adept. So you have just enough that you go, oh, Don knows what he's talking about. You know, like like Don wouldn't know what he's talking about, right? Sure. No, I appreciate that. I I think some of that, if you look at, um, and Jack's a friend of mine, he is a, a gear and a weapons connoisseur. Like he is a gun guy. It's what he loves. It's what he talks about. I was fortunate enough to do some some fun things I was an FBI agent and a SWAT guy but I I'm not a gun guy and so what you see what Matt uses is what I used and so what what Matt and so I put in there what my experience was and I put enough in there hopefully to lend veracity to it and then I've when when I got out of the FBI I was worked for um a small veteran-owned company that and and have um even though it's a different company now, have worked primarily marketing technology to um, Special Operations Command and the intelligence community. And so you get to rub shoulders with some really interesting people. And so I have some go-to folks where I know if, if I'm writing a scene like, like in Target Acquired, for instance, that begins with two snipers, I'm not a sniper, I've never been a sniper, and I don't want to teach a class on being a sniper either, but I want to leave enough clues there little lodestones that it adds veracity to it and so what that usually like the the target acquired scene i have a a very good friend who spent most of his army career in delta force and so i'd call him up i'd give him the scene to read and he'd give me an hour and a half class on ballistics and and why snipers did certain things and i'd use maybe a fraction of that but the 
intent being that I use enough of it for the reader to say, okay, this feels real. And it feels like this isn't not even that I know what I'm talking about, but that the two guys in the scene know what they're talking about. And that's, that's all I tend to go with. Now, what, what I probably have to watch more with um, that maybe Jack does, I don't know, I've never talked with Jack about it, is certainly the things you're more familiar with. So for me, if it's an air-to-air scene or if it has a component to that, I probably um, could, could default into providing too much technical detail there. And so it's, all, it's always, even writ large, it's always a balance between you want to provide enough that the reader believes it's real without without sacrificing pacing in the story. And whether that's the kind of gun they're using, the gear they're using, or even a fight scene that's happening, story drives everything. And I'm always gonna try and default to story and pacing while putting enough detail in there to make it believable, hopefully. All right, well, you just said exactly what I wish I had been able to articulate, <laughs> which is, it's just enough that you know what you're talking about. It's enough to paint the scene but I'm not pulled down into the minutia of the grain yeah. and the so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate um, that. Both sides equally fabulous. And you uh, must've been re reading my notes because I, my next thing was talking about uh, being an FBI special agent <laughs> and it's a two part question, which I tend to do. How did you enjoy that gig and how close to what we see on television is what you lived? Uh, I, I liked it very much. Um, the first job I had was as a human or human intelligence agent. And so my job was to run and recruit what we call sources and what folks in the intelligence community call assets. And so um, prior to September 11th, September 11th changed a lot of things um, within the intelligence community, within how we went about running and recruiting sources. And the FBI in particular had been very much more of a criminal focused organization beforehand. And the way that they ran and recruited sources reflected that in that it was, I'm gonna use the hammer on everybody. So I'm gonna get this thing on you. I'm gonna use this thing as leverage against you and you're gonna come work for me, which might be the effective way to do it if you're recruiting somebody who is a member of a gang and, and you need information about drugs or something. For an intelligence community, it's a lot different because, and, and this is something the CIA um, specifically does very, very well, is what's called rapport-based recruiting. So instead, what you're doing is building a relationship with somebody and you're using the capital that you've invested in that relationship to drive the taskings that you give the person. And so it was, it was almost as, you know, I wasn't in the FBI there, but having been to Quantico and kind of heard the stories, it was kind of a come to Jesus meeting for um, the FBI after September 11th that said, if we're going to be a member of the intelligence community and we're going to work counterterrorism, you know, counter foreign intelligence, foreign intelligence, intelligence, we need to start incorporating more lessons learned from the people in the intelligence community, like the CIA or DIA, who have done this for a living very, very successfully. And so that was a lot of fun. That was my job, um, the first part of my career as an FBI agent. And then the second part, um, I would like I said, I, or I made the SWAT team, which in um, the field office I was in, in most FBI field offices, unless you're part of the hostage rescue team, which is our elite um, counterterrorism, national counterterrorism force, or you're in a very large field office, like say the, the New York field officers or the Washington DC office, SWAT is an additional duty. It's not, it's something um, 
that you, I can't remember how many days a week you would have dedicated to SWAT stuff, you know, whether it was going to range or learning how to do stuff or whatever. And then you'd have your normal job, which is your case agent or your, your case agent job, which for me originally was being a human person to run and recruit sources. And then I did that and had a great time with it and then got moved over um, to the public corruption squad, which was not nearly as fun. And so that was much more, you know, here's your 30,000 emails, try and figure out, you know, what this person, in, and I very much felt like I was, I was sitting in a cubicle again, um, which is, which is part of the reason why I left the FBI to go work with my, my friends in the army. And so it was, it was in, in, incredible experience all the way around. Um, the people who, um, the, the men and women who are special agents or, in, or, or all members of the FBI are incredibly professional, incredibly dedicated stuff. Now, as to what, uh, how much of it is realistic, I guess it depends on what, um, what you're talking about or what show. I know, uh, so Silence of the Lambs was actually filmed at the FBI Academy. Um, Jodie Foster went there and they did the Yellow Brick Road and stuff like that. And so yeah. parts of that, I think, were, were pretty accurate. Some of the other stuff, I honestly um, don't, I, I feel like writers are, are one or two ways. They either, you're, you're a cop and so you write cop books or you're a cop and you want nothing to do with cop books. And so I, I'm, I fall more into the latter of that where I really don't watch TV shows or read books that have to do with FBI agents. I, I can't tell you too much more than that, I guess. Interesting. Okay. It makes sense um, after fashion, especially when you got to the desk jockey part of the equation. Yeah. And you uh, enlightened me on something, which was a question. I didn't know that SWAT was something that you worked alongside FBI. I didn't know if it was, you know, uh, simultaneous or two different divisions. So I learned something there. Yeah, it's simultaneous. It, they are FBI agents, but they're so at a field office, there are a number of different additional duties you can do. They have something called the evidence response team. And those are the folks you always see in the blue windbreakers that are out picking up um, bullet casings and doing searches and stuff. They have a number of different teams and SWAT is one of those additional duties that you can try out for. Here's a, here's something that just popped into my head and I'm always trying to watch these details is have you been, have you watched a show, a movie, a film, whatever, and you saw the actors do a particular thing and you go, that never happens. Yeah, I, I'm certain I have, but I can't off the top of my head. The, the one thing that I, I say all the time or that I use and have had to um, with my own books, whether it's blurb cover stuff, is that people will say, and this isn't FBI, but it's CIA, that you are a CIA agent. The CIA doesn't have agents. The CIA has officers. And so if you are in the FBI, you're a case agent or you're a special agent. The equivalent to that, if you're working sources, is called a case officer in the CIA. It's not a CIA agent. And the same with my protagonist is, is a member of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is has a very similar mission to the CIA, but is a, um, a military organization. And so there's all kinds of great stuff to use there because the DIA and CIA constantly fight over mission set and turf and, and things of like that. But it's the same thing in, in one of my books, the, the back cover copy kept coming back, you know, DIA agent Matt Drake. And I'm like, stop, take that off. There are no DIA agents. There are officers, but there are no agents. And so. It's just that that isn't exactly your question, but that's one of my my pet peeves, I guess. 
No, that is a that is as close to being a question as possible. Uh, and I've tried to watch this show SWAT on CBS. I've watched maybe an episode or two, and I just I don't know, man. Sometimes some of the and and maybe it's the difference between commercial television and sure. and public television or like PBS or like a film, but some of it's just mm-hmm. so cheesy. I'm like I can't I can't watch <laughs> this. You know, it's just yeah. So there's a really good show um, that is not the U.S. version. It's more the Israeli version. It's called Fauda. It's F-A-U-D-A, and it's um, on Netflix, and it's fantastic. And it and it follows a unit, and and it's up for debate whether the unit that's displayed in the show is part of the Shin Bet, which is kind of their version of the FBI, or it's an army unit, or some compilation of it. But it shows that intersection of case officers running sources, paramilitary folks who are going out to prosecute it, undercover folks. And it is a fantastic show. I highly recommend it. And the star of that is, uh, his name escapes me right now, but he was actually in that unit in the IDF uh, before he he made it big as as a movie star. So when people ask about what's a show that's realistic, Fauda is a show that's realistic. It is on, it is now on my list, Don. (laughs) Well, I want to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have Don perform a strategic maneuver right in front of your eyes that's going to impress us. So stay with us. A simple favor for a friend ends with Jack Ryan Jr. hurtling down a path of violence and betrayal in the breathtaking entry in this number one New York Times bestselling series. Target Acquired is the latest Tom Clancy Jack Ryan Jr. novel by Don Bedley. The Washington Post calls it heart-stopping action, entertaining and eminently topical. Carcass Reviews calls it fast and furious Clancy fare. The New York Times says constantly taps the current world situation for imminent dangers and spins them into an engrossing tale and daily mail calls it a brilliantly constructed thriller that packs a punch like semtex read and see why don bentley takes tom clancy to the next level with target acquired available now you're listening to the thriller zone and now back to the show everybody don bentley here author of the matt drake series the outside man and i'm here to do the unboxing for what I think is the Tom Clancy Target Acquired book. Before I do that, I wanted to show you something. I have been a Tom Clancy fan since I was about 13. See the yellowed pages right here. Cardinal and the Kremlin. There may or may not be a reference to that in Target Acquired. I also wanted to show you the first Jack Ryan Jr. one I ever read by my friend Mark Graney. So this is pretty cool. I wasn't going to use that one anyway. I got this backup knife. Everybody has a backup knife, says the FBI. That was that was a smooth cut. That was a smooth cut. Oh, did you see that? Here we go. And inside we have Target Acquired, which is very cool. Just want to say thank you to my awesome editor, Tom Colgan, for this opportunity. Never in the world did 14-year-old me ever think that 47-year-old me get to write a Tom Clancy book. So thank you. That's awesome. Uh, thank you. The, uh, the knife going flying out of your hand. 
I had to watch that thing three times. It was so hilarious. And you didn't miss a beat. I wasn't going to use that one anyway. Here's my backup knife. <laughs> my, my wife was filming for me and she may have been a little terrified. And then she, uh, not, not because it was going to hit her, which it may have, but because she thought it was going for the dog for sure. So thankfully, neither my wife nor the dog were harmed in the filming of that clip. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought to myself, who is uh, who's over there on the floor, right? Where that? It, what what kind of <laughs> knife was it that went flying? It was just a butter knife or a, a little steak knife. I I oh. have there are people who are true ninjas like Jack Carr that do these amazing, elaborate unboxing with his knife skills, and I've got my steak knife that I use. So poking a little fun at my friend jack carr oh that's hilarious some of my favorite things are watching uh, two things that he does a uh, side note uh his unboxing and when he write when he reads the bad reviews <laughs> yeah. yeah he's awesome i'm so he's gonna such... steal so stealing that he's a great guy and the thing about jack too is the guy you see in those clips is what he's like in real life he's just yeah. an honest genuine really humble guy he's a great guy I met him there at 19 Thriller Fest and uh, we struck up a conversation, hung out a little bit. And I thought, this guy can't be this cool. And I have watched him now for what, uh, two, three years now. And he, it's exactly the same thing yeah, all the time. He's down. a great guy. And that great enthusiasm guy. of his is infectious. Where in all this education and enlisted action did you begin to say to yourself, you know what, what I really want to do is to write. Was this something yeah. as far back as a kid? Was it something along the way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think most writers are, are, are storytellers and probably start down the path of, of writing as being a storyteller. And so I remember being a kid and, you know, watching a movie or reading a particular book and liking it or not liking it and thinking, man, if they would have done this, the ending would have been different or they could have. And so, you know, I remember, you know, being in, in third or fourth grade and, and rewriting an episode of, of Star Trek or something like that that I'd seen. And so even from a young age, I liked writing, I liked storytelling. And then I was, I think I started playing around trying to write a book or my first book when I was in high school. And I had a, a great AP English teacher. Her name was Jill Easter, who um, was very encouraging to me. And I remember to the point where I had a class assignment was to write a scene or something like that. And I wrote mine and I remember her pulling me aside afterwards and saying, you're really good at this. You could do this for a living. And so um, I, I followed her advice by going to college and getting a degree in electrical engineering. And so I think I was uh, of the opinion then and, and probably still now that it's much easier to be a struggling writer if you have a, a vocation that allows you to pay the mortgage than it is to be a struggling writer and you know, scrambling to pay the bills a different way. And so, um, but even in, even in college, uh, I was still writing and, and worked on another book for a while, but there were, there were things fundamentally that I didn't understand about the structure of a short story or the structure of a novel. And so around 2000 or 2001, I think it was late 2000, uh, I took a series of classes from Writer's Digest online and they had these great classes about you know, here's the structure of a short story. Here's the structure of a novel. Here's even maybe some basic grammar and formatting things that I didn't understand that I kind of got under my belt. And then from, from there, I wrote, like I said, a succession of novels that, that went nowhere, but were still very much um, me learning my craft. And I think, you know, people, you can't tomorrow 
excuse me, just decide that you want to be an electrician or a plumber or something, right? There's an apprenticeship journeyman, you know, master process, but a lot of people think you can do that with writing. You can just sit down and write a book. And, and most people, I think Brandon Sanderson famously wrote 13 books while he was working as a night manager at a hotel before he wrote one that was good enough to sell is that you have to go through that apprenticeship journeyman process yeah. to get good enough at your craft to do that. And so I did that. And I also was fortunate enough to have the uh, army GI bill. And so I went back and got my MFA in um, writing popular fiction from Seton Hill university and, and fantastic low residency program that was unabashedly focused on genre fiction. And so you went there to learn how to write commercially saleable fiction. And that was another, I guess, inflection point, if you will. And then probably my, my other one um, that you and I talked about a little bit in passing was Thriller Fest. And it's, and when people ask me, hey, I'm thinking about getting an MFA, you know, what should I do? And I said, and my answer always is if you are, if finances are limited and you have the choice between going and getting an MFA and going to writers conferences, I would go to writers conferences any day of the week. And, and that's not to say that MFAs aren't valuable or you don't learn things from them. I think you do, but MFA programs for the most part are, are filled with people who are trying to become professional writers, a good writer's conference is filled with people who already are. And so you can get kind of a master's class in writing or the business of writing or something for the price of buying somebody a beer or two after the, you know, the formal session ends. And so yeah. Thriller Fest is where I met my agent for the first time, where I met my editor, where I met a lot of my critique partners and stuff. And so it's, it's certainly not, you know, the only writing conference, but for me, it, it's probably the premier one for, for thriller writers for sure. Yeah. And, and my audience has heard me say this on the show a number of times that that uh, thriller fest in 19 was one of the best events ever in my entire life because yeah. of that very thing. I never had imagined being able to walk into a room and meet not only authors that I had spent my youth reading, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> to be able to sit and, you know, learn from them. It literally yeah. is boots on the ground school uh, f over a period of what, four or five days. And Absolutely. it was just, just friggin' amazing. Absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. No, when I was researching, because I saw Seton uh, Hill and I thought to myself, what I had never heard of an MFA in writing popular fiction. So I did a little study and I, uh, there are 52 universities that offer MFA mm -hmm. in creative writing, for instance, but this is the only one that I saw that writes popular fiction. I thought, okay, yeah. now that's, that's about as specific as it can. Like when you go to Hollywood or UCLA, you can get courses specifically screenplay for thrillers, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, uh, is, is Seton one of those, one yeah. of the few that I've ever seen that, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, you know, a lot of, I don't want to make a generalization, but a, a lot of times, if you're in an MFA program, you know, popular commercial fiction is frowned upon that you're, you're there to learn how to write a literary novel. And so Seton Hill took the opposite tack and said, Hey, you know what? There are a lot of folks who want to be the next James Patterson or Javan Janet Ivanovich or whoever we're going to bring in and they bring in New York times, bestselling authors as part of the residency to give classes there. And they, um, and the other part that's that's amazing is that when you come in, you are accepted under a specific genre. And so you say, hey, I want to learn how to write romance. 
Well, your thesis advisor is an, a writer who is commercially published in romance. And so your thesis is your novel. So you write a novel over the two and a half years or something that you're in the program and your mentors and advisors are writers who write in that particular genre. And so that isn't to say you, you can't switch genres. Uh, if you don't, if you want to, you can certainly do that. And they have a lot of cross genre population. Like you're one of the other things that uh, was a critical thing I learned in the MFA program is, is this um, notion of close reading. So how do you read a book in a way that you deconstruct what the author does? And, and so the way they facilitate that is you have your reading lists are a lot of commercial fiction and it rotates. So sometimes the, the, the cohort of thriller writers picks it out, sometimes the romance, sometimes the sci-fi. And for me, there were some things I was doing wrong from a structure perspective that I didn't realize until two, two um, I guess it was one house ago, I didn't have an office. We lived in a smaller place and I took uh, one of Vince Flynn's, I think it was Transfer of Power, my, my favorite Vince Flynn novel. And I used index cards for each scene, different color index cards for each character. And I put it across our bedroom wall, much to my wife's chagrin. And so <laughs> what that allowed me to do though, is you can see behind the scenes. Like how did they put together the novel? When do they introduce the B story? How often does he, did Vince go before bringing Mitch Rapp in? You know, all of these things that allows you now to look at the, at the blueprints of the book, if you will, instead of just the finished product, because that's what you have to do as a writer. You have to be able to appreciate what, the, what they did as a reader, but then go back a second time and say, now, how did they do that? How did they move it along? How did they, you know, all of those things. And you can figure that out by reading, you know, popular fiction, by reading people who are doing it well right now. And it was, you know, a buddy of mine that I met in the program, my third novel didn't sell. And we were trying to talk about why. And this was back in the days where there were actual malls and bookstores and malls. And he said, all right, let's go in the bookstore and we're going to pick at random three books that are in the bestseller list in the genre that you, that you are trying to write. And I said, okay. And we picked them. And each one of those three books had a gun within the first five pages of the book. Each one did. Now that wasn't a written rule. That wasn't, but as readers, you are conditioned to expect certain things. If you read in this genre, you probably wouldn't be able to articulate. I couldn't, I expect to see a gun or a dead body in the first five pages, but there are conventions that you're conditioned to expect because that's what the other authors are doing. If you're an author and you're trying to write in that genre and you don't understand the conventions of it, you're not going to be commercially successful. And that doesn't mean you have to follow them all the time. Certainly you don't, but you have to, it's the same thing as grammar rules, right? You have to understand what they are first before you choose to break them. And it's very much the same thing from a structural standpoint for a book. And that's why reading, you know, Stephen King famously said that to be a good writer, you got to read a lot and you got to write a lot. That's why you have to read a lot because you have to understand what the people who are actually making a living at this are doing. And that's another one to come full circle why the writers conferences are so good. Like right. Steve Barry teaches a class in writing or used to teach it every Thriller Fest. And I went to that same class for like five Thriller Fests in a row yeah. because it was so good. And it was such a good grounding of here's somebody who's been incredibly successful at this and he is literally laying on the table this is how you write a, a novel i mean you'd be a fool not to take advantage of that i remember sitting in that class in 19 and i'm like is he giving me his inside secrets 
Yeah. And of course, the difference between a, a, a master giving you your inside sure. secrets and you actually being able to do them is he's sure. been doing it for 20 plus books and you're starting. <clears throat> sure. Sure. Which which made me think. You said how many books did you write that were failures? Did you say thirteen? No, no, no. That was Brandon Sanderson. He has some some famous. Uh, so he's a a um, fantasy and science fiction writer. Um, he has a huge number of his own books. But then when Robert Jordan, who did the Wheel of Time series, died, they brought in Brandon Sanderson to finish that one, and it was something like that. I wrote wow. three complete novels um, that did not sell, and I wrote probably parts of another two or three that didn't got it yeah. and were you able to sell was it was sanctioned was the one uh that sold uh, at thriller fest no so well not at first so the first time i came to thriller fest was with my third book um that was my thesis novel at from seton hill and it also didn't sell and that was incredibly demoralizing to me i'd gone through this mfa program and didn't but it was the first book where um, Matt, my protagonist, made his appearance in the first book that I wrote in first person. And so I think what you have to do, I can look back now and, and, and talk about what I learned for each one of those three books and see how that brought me to, without sanction, the book that sold in a two book deal. And that's the people ask a lot. They're like, hey, now that you're published or now that you've sold a couple books, are you going to go back and try and sell this? And, I absolutely not. You know, there's a reason why they didn't sell. And that was because I was still learning how my craft and I hadn't gotten good enough at it yet to be commercially viable. And so it's, you know, to me, it's the same thing as, as a woodworker, you know, messing up a, the first couple of things and somebody saying, Hey, that, that junk you got in the back of your shop, are you ever going to try it and sell that? And like, absolutely not. But that is what it took me to be able to make this beautiful, you know, desk or what have you. It's so funny that you should say that because that instant you said that, I thought uh, I do a little woodworking here and there. And I thought, you know, you would never start out and go, you know what, I'm going to build a desk or a nice bookshelf yep. and it's going to be yep. really spectacular. And think that that very first one is going to be one that you're going to finish off and be proud of and yep. put in your living yep. room. It's usually about the fourth or fifth one. So why do why do we think that we could ever sit down? I'm remembering my very first book and I'm like, man, it was a yeah. piece of crap. And the second one was probably equally as crappy. And then I switched genres and I'm like, okay, this is good, but mm -hmm. it's still bordering on crap. <laughs> and now I'm at 10 and I'm like, okay, now I think I'm starting to get it. But I yeah. think that's, I think that's key. I think, I mean, that's one of the very hard things about writing. And so when, when people ask me, you know, for my two cents, what do I think it takes to be a successful writer? I think it's, perseverance for sure but if you write the same book over and over again you know that's the definition of insanity there has to be growth as a writer between those books but unlike a desk that you can look off and say hey man that that isn't even level you know my pens are rolling off the desk <laughs> very very hard to do as a writer and in fact you know i've used the woodworking analogy there it's like you spend a year of your life in isolation building a desk and you give it to somebody and you get a form letter in response that just says, no, that's not for me. And you're like, did, is it the wrong color? Did you want more drawers? Did you not even want a desk? And so <laughs> I think, you know, for me, it was finding the biggest, one of the biggest things I got out of grad school was my first critique partner. 
and he was farther along the path than I was and was able to help me understand just like that conversation in the mall some of the things that from a craft perspective that I wasn't doing right and Thriller Fest is the same way you know one of Bill Schwagert's a phenomenal writer he's one of my critique partners and Nick Petrie was kind enough to critique um, without sanction actually and so if you don't have that, if you don't have a writer that's farther along the path than you are, and frankly, a lot of times that can be the problem. One of the problems in an MFA program is you're all the blind leading the blind. And so you're giving some of the same feedback you've heard on your book, but that person hasn't sold a book yet either, right? So who's to say that they're right or that you're right or that somebody else? And that's why I think it's so important that without perseverance, you're never going to write the book that actually sells. But without actually getting better at your craft through the guidance of somebody who's farther along the path than you are, you're never going to write a good enough book to actually sell. And I think a lot of people have one or the other. And, and it, in my opinion, it takes both of those to be actually commercially successful. Wow. A couple of gems there in your uh, <laughs> description, Don. And it makes me wonder, how close did you get and did you feel like you were closer to getting that desk just right, just level yeah. and think, okay, this is it. And then to see that, oh, wow, especially yeah. when it was your thesis and you think, oh, well, I've yeah. spent, I've probably about two years and quite a bit of money to get that MFA. And I'm like, yep. oh, I've got this nailed. And then for that not to sell, that had to be just. Yeah. It was, it was a big blow. I thought I was going to come to Thriller Fest with this book and I had, you know, an interesting background and people were going to love it and they didn't. And it, it took me about two years to get over that and go home and write the, the next book. And the author, the, the agent that I pitched to first, the one I really wanted is, is Barbara Powell, who's my agent now. And she rejected it. And she said, you need to go home and write a better book. And so we got, we became friends and through her, I met Nick Petrie who writes um, the Drifter series with Peter Ashton. And, and so when I got to the point where I was ready to submit to her again, I thought I was done. And Nick's like, let me read it. And he's like, I'll tell you what I think. And so he did. And there were a lot of good things. And he, but at the end of it, he said, you need another edit. And he's like, this isn't ready. And he was kind enough to go through the first chapter and tag everything that he would have done differently. And it was when I looked at it first, it, it was infuriating. And I'm like, he just doesn't understand my voice. It's not. And then when I looked at it again and, and said, you know what, he's right. And I would have turned that book into Barbara and she, maybe she would have rejected it again. And so I went back, did another edit. She took it and then we sold it in a two book deal in seven days. But I thought I was ready. Right. And, and I thought I was twice ready because it was my next book after the MFA program. And if it wasn't number one for Nick to be kind enough to offer that feedback and number two, for me to swallow my pride enough to take that feedback, maybe I would have written a fourth book that hadn't sold too. And that's, that's the part I think that's hard is a lot of times as writers, when we ask for feedback, what we really are asking for is affirmation. Like read yeah. my book and tell me how great I am. Yeah. And there should be some of that, but if there's not the part of it of, Hey man, you need another edit and you're not willing to take that advice and the book doesn't sell, well then, I mean, uh, you know, it's a hard business and there are all kinds of crazy things that go wrong with it and all kinds of times where good books don't sell and things, but I think there's a fair amount of time. And I can say this because my 17 years could have been substantially shorter if I would have done that sooner where it's, 
you haven't written a good enough book yet and you still haven't gone back and addressed those things that are making your book not a great book and the yeah. publishing industry is only interested in buying great books because they're gambling on the fact that it's going to make a lot of money that's right yeah that's right I'm, I mean, if you, I don't, I don't know what the stats are, but the amount, the amount of books that actually earn out are minuscule, even at big publishing houses, right? Which means the majority of books they buy, they end up losing money on, which, which the only way that you can afford to do that is you have books that are stellar performers, right? But with that in mind, you're going to be even more particular when you go after the book that you're going to sell, right? Because yeah. it's not... You know, we think of our, you know, our, my, my editor, Tom Colgan was talking about when Clancy would put out a book and that, and John Grissom has talked about this too, the amount of responsibility that John Grissom feels when he writes a book, because there are so many people whose paychecks are dependent in some way on the book he writes, right? Well, Tom Clancy was the same way. The needle would swing hugely on the year he wrote a book versus the year he doesn't write a book. Right. Because because there are so many books he's selling and that money is paying for publishers and agents and everybody in, in between. And so it's is it a cutthroat agency or a, a hard industry? Absolutely, it is. But it's also an industry in which the majority of books that they put out fail, even after all of this, even after everything, you know, the amount of due diligence they do it. And so it's crazy when you start looking at things from the other side of the aisle, you know, the side of the aisle of being an agent or an editor or a publisher or something, they have is just, just as much skin in the game as you do. It's daunting. And uh, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead of myself with a question I wanted to have later, but how do, what kind of encouragement, what kind of advice would you give an up and coming writer who maybe they're on number one, maybe it's number four, maybe yeah. it's number eight, and they're just not really sure, or they really want to do this. Because when you look at those stats that you just mentioned, yeah. Don, and you walk into a Barnes and Noble, I'm picking this out yeah. of the air, and you see stacks and stacks and stacks of books, it's hard not to be uh, dissuaded or disheartened by the amount of competition. And then back to your sure. point about it not making money. I mean, what kind of advice would you give words of encouragement? I think, I mean, from a words of encouragement standpoint, certainly, you know, I got to be a better writer over the time period um, of, from my first book to the book that I actually sold. And there's no reason why anybody else can't become better writers too. If they're willing to put in the time and, and dedication to their craft and stuff, you know, Mark Graney is a great friend of mine. And he says all the time that his secret of success is when he got to the point where it got really hard, he would think to myself, to himself, this is the part where most people quit. So if I last one more day, I'm going to last longer than most people do. Or if I write one more page or if I write, and there's a lot to perseverance, to perseverance and continuing in the face of rejections. And not everybody it takes four books for, you know, some people are good enough writers that they do it in their first book. But I think the second part is to have a realistic expectation about what a career in writing looks like. So what, what does success mean for you? Because if success means I get to write full-time, I get to live full-time based on my salary as a writer, there are very few people that get to do that. That's, that's just the truth. There are very few people. I was fortunate. I just got to go full-time as a writer and I have, um, three books that are published now and I'm under contract for, you know, several more books and, and just got to the point I was doing two jobs for 
the last four years trying to make it and just got most most folks aren't going to be able to do that. And so what does success look for you? Does it right. look like, you know, a major publisher has purchased my book? That's awesome. That That's something to be celebrated. Does it look like, you know, it makes it on the shelf of Barnes and Noble? That's awesome. That's something that can be celebrated. And so I think part of it is being realistic about, you can be realistic about your expectations, but still shoot for the stars. Like there's sure. no reason to say, I, I can't do that or I can't try and do that. But I think the people you know, I, like I said, I've been trying to do this for a long time. And I've seen a lot of folks who got their first book deal and went full-time or tried to go full-time too soon. And it crushed them because back to my degree in electrical engineering, suddenly that thing that's your hobby, you're now trying to pay the mortgage with, and that brings its own set of pressures and stuff to you. Or maybe your book doesn't do as well as it wants. There, there are lots of stories of fantastic writers whose first series tanked. And so they picked themselves up, wrote a completely different series. And that's when they hit, hit their sweet spot. But this is a game or a profession where you have to play the long game, where you yeah. have to realize that success is incremental, that there are ups and downs, and that your version of success might not be somebody else's. And you have to, I think, be willing to, to embrace that. Great advice. Uh, so let's go back to so without sanctions, number one, your follow up was uh, the outside man where Matt Drake has traveled the world for freedom. And according to the pitch this time, the fight is at his front door. I have yet to read that one that is next on my list. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. Is it uh, so is it true you have two more Drake books in the uh, you may have mentioned that earlier yep. on, I think I saw that somewhere. Yeah, so I had just turned in Hostile Intent, which was book three in the series, uh, to my editor a couple weeks ago. And then uh, the fourth book in the series is due, I guess, a year from now. So I've got uh, one more book in that series before we, we hopefully talk about um, another, another deal to extend it. And then I turned in my first book in the Clancy series, um, in February, and then that Target Acquired came out just in, in June, and I hope to be able to announce uh, something for for that series as well pretty soon. Tell me about the feeling, because this is what I really want to talk about. That feeling, that last line that you said, never in the world, what did you say? Yeah, never in the world would 14-year-old uh, me think that 47-year-old me would get to write a Tom Clancy book. Yeah. It, is incredible. Um, the first time I sat down at my computer and, and typed the name Jack Ryan and realized I was going to write about him was incredible. And, uh, you know, in, in Target Acquired, I mentioned a lot of, uh, like, of the legacy characters. And for me, it wasn't, I mean, it was certainly, hopefully it was important to the story, but it was also like, here's, who knows if I'll ever get to write one of these books again. And so it's my chance to play, pay homage to all of the incredible folks that shaped me, you know, even though they're fictional characters had probably a lot to do with me wanting even to go into the military. And what's funny is that I told during the interviews for that book, I told the story many, many times about my, my neighbor whose parents were more lenient than I was and let him read those Tom Clancy books and he would smuggle them to me one at a time. And so the first one I ever read was Red Storm Rising, which was Tom's, you know, World War Three. Um, and, but Cardinal and the Kremlin was shortly thereafter. And so I talked to him, I talked about him enough that somebody asked me in an interview and I'm like, have you tried to find him? And I'm like, that's an interesting question. And so I actually 
went back and found him through Facebook or something like that and sent him an email and like, Hey, believe it or not, this is me. And I get to write a Clancy book. Now, do you want a copy? And he's like, are you kidding me? Send me a copy. So I got to track him down and send him a copy of my Clancy book, you know, whatever, 30 years after he lent me his copy of his Clancy book. So that was pretty cool. So help me get inside your head and tell me how you got the gig to write mm -hmm. a, 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 a version of your hero. I mean, I'm, yeah. tr I, I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. Yeah. So I, I'm very, very lucky in that um, Tom Colgan is my editor for my Matt Drake series. And he has edited everybody from, from Lee Child to Janet Ivanovich to Mark Graney now to um, pretty much everybody uh, who, who is a, a thriller writer. And so when Tom Clancy was still alive, Tom Colgan was his final editor. And so uh, after, after Tom uh, tragically passed away, or actually before that, when, when the first co-writer came in, I think was can't remember if it was Grant Blackwood or, or what, but um, Mark Graney wrote with Tom Clancy and then wrote the first book after Tom Clancy died. And like me, excuse me, Mark Graney's Gray Man series, Tom Colgan is also the editor for that. And so Tom had read Mark's Gray Man series, liked him and asked him if he would be interested in writing with Tom Clancy and then taking over afterwards. So very similar with me when I turned in the outside man, after you turn the book in, your editor reads it and sends you an editorial letter. And then you have the editorial call where you discuss the book and, and the letter. And I always kind of equate it to that, that time in fourth grade when you forgot your homework and you're waiting for the teacher to call on you. And because that's what it feels like when you've written this book and you've sent it to the editor and, and you're waiting for the person who pays you to write books to give their verdict on the book. And so we had a very pleasant conversation about the outside man. And then at the very end of it, kind of as a Columbo moment, you know, Tom Colgan said, it's just one more question. Would you be interested in writing in a Tom Clancy book? And so I was convinced I didn't hear that right at all. And, and I said, what did you say? And so he said, yeah, the, the writer before me, Mike Madden, who did a fantastic job and decided he didn't want to write any more books. And so the timing just lined up um, that, Tom knew me, had read my first two books, and Mike had decided he didn't want to write anymore, and so he offered it to me, which was an incredible thing, and, I, and I, he said, you know, go home and think about it, and, and don't make the decision right away, and so he said, but I'll have you talk to Mark Graney, because Mark, you know, like I said, had did it as well, and was he's a phenomenally successful author, and so when I talked with Mark, he started the conversation with I'm not going to tell you to do this because it's it's incredibly hard to write two books at the time at the same time and and writing in the universe is very rewarding but very challenging but I'm going to lay out the pros and cons for you in a very objective way and by the end of the call he's like you have to do this it's so good for your career you never get another chance and so it um I actually at first I told my wife and I was like hey, you know I'm very flattered but I'm going to say no. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what? I'm barely holding it together with my full-time job and writing this book. Cause now I'd have to go from writing one book a year to writing two books a year and still working my full-time job. And I'm like, there's no way I can do that. And she's like family meeting. And so she calls the kids in and, you know, one of the, part of the benefit of, 
you know, taken so long to sell a book is everybody, my, my kids are in their late teens or my son's about to turn 20. And so they had seen me struggle for years and years and years, and then finally seen me start to succeed. And so they were very much like, you have to do this. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but here's what it's going to mean for the next, you know, however long. And so for a good year, a year and a half, I, I didn't have a day off. I wrote seven days a week. I, in fact, I took my first weekend off in probably two years last weekend because I'm finally getting caught up. And so it was incredibly challenging to do that. Um, but I managed to hold it together long enough that, that I got to a point where the book came out. I felt confident enough in the books I was under contract to write and they were doing well that I could go full time. But that was another one where you know, the last thing that you want is something that is very much a, a blessing to turn into a burden. And I knew that if I tried to write full-time then that the numbers just weren't there for it yet. And so, you know, that's, that's, I guess, with a lot of things with life, it's something my wife had said in some of the other times is that very rarely does life offer you something incredible and you just can slide into it. You know, normally there's a prodigious amount of work that goes along with that. And that was certainly right. the case for me. Wow. What a great story. No, thank you. Yeah. And I can't imagine I'm, I, I'm picturing your family now going dead. Really? What? What? This is only all the thing you've been talking about forever. And that's what you want to do. And it's Tom freaking Clancy. Uh, yeah, you're going to do this. Hilarious. Yeah, but but I think it is important, not if you're just if you're a writer, if anything, that there are seasons in your life. And so yeah. there are seasons, you know, I work well, I've worked for startups before that said, hey, for this period of time, it's going to be a little crazy and here's what it's going to look like, but here's where it's going to end. And then it'll either this will work or it won't work, but the craziness that I've been going under, we're not going to keep doing that. And I think that was very, very helpful in this and that we had an endpoint. We were going to do it for one book. We were going to see how it worked. And if it didn't work, I was still fortunate enough to have another series to go back and write to. Yeah. Well, uh, bear with me a second, because there, I found four testimonials that I really love. First of all, it never hurts to be uh, endorsed by Lee Child, who says sensationally good. I think that's on the yeah, that's on the cover of uh, Without Sanction, which talking about a uh, blessing. Uh, Jack Carr talking about Jack says uh, the same book, knocks it out of the park. Bentley's hard won wisdom and experience from time downrange grip the reader from the first page to the last. Another doozy. Yeah, it's a nice blurb. Mark Graney, your pal. Seriously, one of the most compelling debuts in recent memory. And my favorite, and leave it to Steve Barry to paint the picture instantly. You can smell the cordite, hear the explosions, and feel the fight in this one. Action jumps from every page. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. for people who have not read Don Bentley yet. So maybe that'll add a little flame to your fire. <laughs> and as we begin to wrap, because I realize that you have uh, books to write and places to go, <laughs> I'd like, there's a couple of questions uh, that I want to throw sure. at you. You're called back to duty overseas, perhaps. And as you grab your pack to head out the door, you, uh, you go to your bookshelf first and you grab one book. It's going to be a tough one, Don. You got to think about this. You're mm -hmm. going to grab one book and then you're going to run over the room to your stereo and pick up one CD. Now, this is going to be with you on your journey. It could be a month. It could be a year. You don't know. What are they and why? Oh, man, that's a hard question. Um, my, my favorite author of all times is, is Vince Flynn and Kyle Mills has done an incredible job taking over for him. 
but I think my favorite book might be The Defector by um, Daniel Silva. And he uh, he's an incredible writer. And he that book, actually, I, I normally read a Daniel Silva book while I'm doing edits on my book because he's, I feel like as a writer, maybe in life, you know, you have, hey, this is a person maybe someday I could be as good as if I, if I work really hard. And this is a person who's like, Michael Jordan, you know, there's just the combination of things that make them a player that you will never achieve their level at, at the game. And, and I feel like Daniel Silva's like that for writing. And so I read The Defector again, and what he does from attention and pacing perspective is just unbelievable. And I'd hope while I was deployed, I, I would write. Um, so, uh, so I'd probably take that with him. One CD. I don't know that I even have CDs anymore. Um, it's okay. We're the, just uh, imagination. I think one of my, uh, man. It can be a genre if that's easier for you. No, I like, uh, so if I, if I had to pick one CD, it might be the Eagles greatest hits. Cause the, uh, <sighs> what I did a lot of times when, when I was, and it comes through in the Matt, Matt Drake books, but when I was in, Korea um, there wasn't a lot to do and so a lot of us learned how to play the guitar and then uh, when I was deployed to Afghanistan did that too and the Eagles have very simple seeming chord progressions but just do incredible things with with um, music it's funny I saw I'm a huge music geek and I saw uh, they had um, uh, Lyle Lovett and um, Sarah McLaughlin were on together which you would not think is a is a normal pairing but was actually pretty incredible and so Sarah McLaughlin is this classically trained musician and stuff and so Lyle Lovett plays one of his songs and I can't remember what it was and he got done and she looked at him and she's like I wish I could write a song like that I only had three chords and it was like and that's what I feel like the Eagles do you know somehow with four or five simple seeming chords they do incredible things all right, because I finished this one and I'm halfway through Target Acquired, which book mm -hmm. is making reference to Eagles chords and using a guitar as a method for? It's that one, without sanction. Okay, okay, because yeah. I love that, the fact that you use yeah. the Eagles, and because one of my all-time favorites, probably Hotel mm -hmm. California. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Okay, superb. Okay, now you're back stateside. Okay, back in Texas mm -hmm. with your wife and your three kids, and you're invited to a dinner. At that dinner, you're allowed to invite two or three people, two or three, living or dead. And because it's a very cool vibe, you can geek out to your heart's content. Who are those people, and why'd you pick them? Mm -hmm. This is our getting inside Don Bentley head. I. <laughs> I think I would have to invite Brad and Elaine Taylor because they are uh, some of the most fun people. I, I got I met Brad through Thriller Fest. We had some um, some common fr friends. He was in Delta Force. One of my uh, very good friends spent a lot uh, large time in Delta Force, and just the two of them together. He's really really funny guy. Really smart. They are the the package team and that he writes books and she's incredibly good at uh, marketing books and kind of managing his career. And I feel like we get to see him a couple times a year and every time we see him, it's, it's a blast. And I feel like I know, uh, learned something as far as, um, man, more weightier stuff. I think that's all I got right now. Okay. I, I don't have a, I don't have an Albert Einstein or anybody for you. That's all I got. I invite <laughs> Brad and Elaine Taylor. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. It's funny. I met uh, Brad at uh, Thriller Fest again and uh, 
for for some reason all of his photographs make him look so huge and i was like i looked him right in the eye and i'm like oh well, we're the same side all right uh if you could go back and sit down because you reference this in uh, in the video if you could go back and sit down with your 14 year old self the one you know who'd never believe you'd be writing that novel the tom clancy novel what would you tell him i tell him not to sulk so long between books and that if he uh if he if he wrote them faster, it might not take him 17 years. Now, I think, you know, one of the crazy things about writing is you never know if you're actually going to be successful at the end, right? And so right. there comes a point, you know, where you start out and you write your first book and you're convinced it's going to sell and it doesn't. And maybe your second one doesn't. And then eventually you start doing the um, math in your head and saying, is this really a worthwhile um investment on my part from a time perspective right especially once you have kids when you have something else and there have been many many times where i wondered if if this was something i should even continue to pursue and i think that's what i tell them just it's worth it it's worth good it. yeah and having read your work i would agree with that oh, thank you next to the last yeah. question if you could snap your fingers and you'd be taken back to a point where you can decide your future work if you could do it all over again and just boom what would it be? Um, I don't know that. And it could be doing what you're doing right now, but just getting there faster. Yeah, I, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't really have regrets on my life. I, I think nice. even, even things that were like, like the thing in Afghanistan that we were talking about before was tragic. Um, I spent a lot of time wishing that there was, that I'd done something differently or there was a way that it had turned out different, but I would not wish that on anybody else. I guess what I would say is that if it had to happen, uh, I would still have it be me that was there when it happened to. And so, you know, I, I think, I think, um, I think from a, from a life perspective, I've been very blessed and I'm very fortunate to be where I am right now. Awesome. That is that's pretty beautiful, actually. And it leads me perfectly to the final question. The time has come. You've written all your books that you've ever wanted to write. Your kids are grown, yep. married. Your life's been full. You're standing at the gates of heaven, if you believe in heaven. Whatever you feel is part of the next chapter of existence. Sure. Either way, you're there at the gates, Pearl or otherwise. This is kind of actor studio stuff. And you're meeting the great master maitre d' or God or whomever that form takes. And they welcome you in. What would you like to hear them say when you arrive? Yes, I, I am a believer. And I think what I would want to be heard is well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, that's what everybody wants to hear is that your, your life on this earth fit the purpose of the one who created you to live it. And I think that's all you can ask for. That's awesome. That's right. I, it's the way I grew up and my, my dad would, uh, who's a Methodist minister and he had a mm. very similar outlook and yeah, good. Well done. My good and faithful servant. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, this has been a remarkable time. I, I gotta tell you this, I was looking forward to this the minute we crossed paths <laughs> and, and I thought it was hilarious when, when I started talking about, Hey Don, what book should I read? And I went back and I found the fact that I'd actually <laughs> bought this ebook that's I don't awesome. know how long ago, and it was caught in my Kindle. <laughs> and I had started to be able to pick it up. And I, there's something about paper I still love. And yeah. I just yeah. ripped through this in just a couple of nights. And I I, I, I just give you huge uh, kudos. You, you've done good, boy. <laughs> Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah. 
and thank you for your time and your service. And I'm, we all are looking forward to your next Matt Drake book. And thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a blast. An enormous thanks to Don Bentley for his service to our country and for taking time from a pretty stacked schedule to talk with us. I had a lot of fun. Hope you did too. Please join me next Friday when the Thriller Zone welcomes former newspaper reporter and current writing research coach consultant, New York Times bestselling author, Caitlin Rother, as we discuss her latest work, Death on Ocean Boulevard, inside the Coronado Mansion case, right here in my backyard. I guarantee you don't want to miss it. I'm David Temple, and I'll see you next time on The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.